show me the way to I'm taking my time on my ride. These aren't my favorite songs. They're not even necessarily the best songs, but rather my life as a playlist. I've struggled recently with this podcast. I'm not sure what it is or where I'm going with it. When I started Life as a Playlist, I intended it to celebrate 80s and 90s nostalgia and the good and the terrible pop that was the backdrop to my childhood and to share my life stories, especially the confusing and traumatic ones, in a funny and lighthearted way, hoping others might relate. And I've done some of that. I've shared stories about how hard I tried to fit in at school and how bad I failed, how I mirrored those around me in order to win love and acceptance, and how much pain that's caused me because I never ever got it quite right. And without being any closer to finding peace within myself or a home outside of it, except with my immediate family. I've discussed surviving abuse and the importance of mental health advocacy and have had lighter episodes about first crushes and first kisses, I should have realized how opening old wounds would leave space for the sadness to pour in, and how hard those episodes would be to write. I thought I'd invite guests to share their top 40 childhood playlists and their stories, but failed to grasp how my social anxiety would set my stomach into a tailspin at the thought of emailing or texting guests, or how the knots would grow even tighter on the rare chance one of them said yes. So, I've had but two guests on my show, with no immediate plans to ask more. This left me scrambling for other types of content. List shows like Best Male Vocalists, or present-day social and politically driven content like my abortion and COVID episodes. Yeah, so I, I don't know what I'm doing. As a communication professor, I know a great show needs to, one, have a great speaker, as the personality of the podcaster matters just as much than the specific content. Two, to understand my intended audience. And at this point, I truly don't. Am I speaking to those of you here who want a fun and light, nostalgic podcast? Am I speaking to those of you who enjoy confessionals, emotionally resonant childhood anecdotes? Or am I speaking to those who are tuned into present-day social justice issues? Or am I speaking to those of you who love music trivia and learning fun facts about top 40 artists and songs? Honestly, I don't have the slightest idea. 3. A show needs to have an idea and a consistent message. So while I am consistently me, all my experiences and views and what I share here are authentically me. Beyond that, I don't have a specific message. If you tune into Life as a Playlist any given week, what are you going to get? I don't know not until I start writing it. For all these reasons and more, while I've been so grateful to the few who have reached out to me to share how much you've loved a particular episode, or that you appreciate my activist sentiments, I've failed to establish and grow an audience. Which, considering again lack of consistency in voice, audience focus, and message, is wholly unsurprising. Why am I sharing this with you? I don't know. It's not your job to fix my show. I have two choices at this point. Quit the show, change the show, or start a different show. Wait, now I can't even count to three. <laughs> I guess that's three choices. So yes, I want to share my life stories. And yes, I also want to write about political and social issues. Maybe these are two different shows. Or maybe I take the time to really figure out what life as a playlist is. Just like I've had difficulty my entire life finding my identity and fitting in, my biggest challenge here is cultivating my brand and identity for the show. If I can do that, 
then I need to focus my message and that should help me find my audience. Just be consistent with show writing and releasing content. So for this episode, I think I'm going to turn the snow globe upside down here, shake it up a little bit, and then next episode I'll return having made some decisions, or not, or perhaps not return at all. I don't know, I'm not trying to go bleak here, so (laughs) we'll see what happens. But if you just felt the room spin and just had a slight wave of nausea, you're fine. That was just me giving the snow globe a good shake. What does that mean? It means instead of wallowing in sorrow and pain, I don't mean to minimize that. It's an important thing to do sometimes. I'm flipping the switch in my brain that lights the room to positivity. Oh god, I hear you say. If you're listening to my show, to me, that must feel pretty uncomfortable. No, I'm not talking about the toxic kind of positive that tells people to ignore their traumas or worse, victim blames them for not solving them on their own. I'm flipping the switch because I want to explore the moments of happiness I had in my childhood. These moments deserve to be felt, to be shared, honored, and not hidden in the dark under a thick pile of dust with the rest of the trash that hasn't been taken out for years, stifling, smelly, and at the end of a long hallway where nobody ever ventures. Because it's been so long since I've turned on that light, perhaps I should wander in with a candle until my eyes adjust. I have no idea what I'm going to find here. I'm completely winging this episode. I'd like to call it my 10 happiest moments of childhood, but who knows? I don't know what number we're going to get to. And as always, my happy childhood memories would be incomplete without an accompanying top 40 playlist, so grab your headphones, a blanket, a warm beverage, and settle in. Nineteen seventy nine, an apartment in Chicago. Fall, I think, maybe late summer. In any case, it was warm enough to walk in the evening, and it wasn't quite dark yet. Me, in a striped turtleneck and corduroy pants and Mary Jane shoes. My mother was very pregnant, or maybe Alex had just been born. The memories blend together. Either way, my father said he'd take me out for a walk. He wanted me to burn off some energy so she could rest and maybe I'd sleep later. Yay, I was getting time alone with my father. We walked down the apartment stairs and onto Granville Avenue without a clear destination in mind. I'd skip and hop and when I got too far ahead, my father would tell me to slow down and hold his hand. Ooh, there was a corner store ahead. The outside looked like any ordinary house and I almost skipped right past it. In it were snacks and knickknacks. Could we go in? No, my father replied. We don't need anything. Please, I begged in my three-year-old voice. Fine, he replied. Only for a minute, and we're not buying anything. We entered the store, and the middle-aged man sat on his stool with his radio playing Anita Ward's number one single, Ring My Bell, a song which garnered her an R&B Best Vocals Grammy nomination, and to which I enthusiastically danced my three-year-old butt off, oblivious to the meaning, but loving the beat. Inside the store was even more magnificent than I realized, standing outside of it, with easy-to-get-lost-in narrow aisles of boxes and shelves, a maze and a cornucopia of goodies. My father grabbed my hand and asked me to stay close, 
but every few moments in my excitement I'd pull away again to explore the next aisle and admire the next treasure, until my eyes locked on the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my long three-year-old life. A black chalkware cat with fake emerald green eyes. I needed it. It's the very first item I ever remember wanting. Daddy, please, can I have this? I asked excitedly. It looks like Smokey. Smokey was our black cat back at home. It looks just like her. Please, Dad. No, Sarah, we don't need this. He picked it up and saw the price tag underneath. No, what are you going to do with this? Put it on my dresser and love it forever. And he bought it for me. And we walked home hand in hand. I was beaming. He loved me. And I put it on my dresser. And I loved it. And I carried it through three childhood moves and my very first two adult ones. Every time I looked at her, long after my father and I had grown apart, I knew on that cool late summer evening in the Chicago of 79, it was just me and my dad, and he loved me and wanted me to be happy. 1983. The bottom floor of a duplex on a typically narrow street in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with cars parked up and down both sides, barely enough room for one car to drive down the street, let alone two. A typical Saturday morning. My father was living in Atlanta, hoping to move the rest of us there. Pointer sisters on the record player, which meant one thing. It was time to clean. My younger brothers picked up their toys in the tiny bedroom all three of us kids shared, while my mother did the dishes and cleaned the kitchen, and I picked up and dusted the living and dining rooms. Dancing around their number 9 Billboard Hot 100 hit, I'm so excited, and I just can't hide it. I'm about to lose control, and I think I like it. My mom and I both sang off-key at the top of our lungs. I had no idea she forced this excitement to fight the sheer exhaustion of working three jobs and caring for three kids under age eight all by herself. I just danced and sang and enjoyed the cleaning process. Once she was satisfied with the apartment, I walked through the kitchen and out the back door into our tiny yard on our tiny street, which felt like a portal to heaven. The smell of the neighbor's freshly cut grass and my favorite tree. I inhaled the warm spring air and picked the tender mulberries, hitting their peak of ripeness, and carefully piled them in my open hand so as not to crush them. As I popped one in my mouth and the taste of sweet rainwater washed over me, I leaned back on my favorite branch and cracked open Beezus and Ramona, inhaling the aroma of old paper in the local library. Birds chirped, and now the sounds of Tina Turner delighted my ears and I sat, unmoving, for hours, until I read the entire book cover to cover, and with the sun starting to set, I pulled out the next book anyway, knowing soon my mother would call me inside for a hot bowl of canned tuna and Kraft mac and cheese with peas. My favorite. 1986. Summer before fifth grade. The last night of Girl Scouts camp. After a fun week of swimming, where after I'd failed the diving test, I spent the afternoons in my white cap backstroking the intermediate quadrant of the large pool and hiking, where each morning we found our breakfast our breakfast being individual-sized boxes of Cheerios or cornflakes or sugar smacks the camp counselors hung on strings from the trees, and a week of music classes, which amounted to drumming along to camp songs with sticks, when I'd signed up for archery, but so did too many other kids, where I worked in the kitchen and learned that to conserve hot water and soap, you wash the forks first, and then the spoons, because those go directly into your mouth, and then the other silverware, and then cups because you bring those to your mouth, and then plates, and then pots and pants. You do them last so they have enough time to soak. 
The counselors told me I was their best dishwasher, and I ate up the praise more hungrily than the backyard mulberries. And when we worked in the kitchen, we could drink all the cups of the yellow, sickeningly sweet blend we wanted. On this, the last night, we all brought our sleeping bags into the field for an all-night-under-the-stars party. As my fellow campers ran around and played tag and screamed and sang, I dragged my sleeping bag as far away from the action as possible, climbed inside, careful to protect my head from the runners and jumpers, and, leaving only my face uncovered, focused on the stars, imagining how many light years away they must be. And hours later, party still raging, fell asleep to the sounds of Madonna's number one hit, Papa Don't Preach, hoping nobody would step on my head. 1987. Strep throat again. And it was Monday, which meant my father, who to his credit always erred on the side of caution when it came to illness, because he was raised by a chronically ill mother, would let me stay home probably for the whole week. This meant that while my younger brothers got dropped off at school and my parents headed off to work, that I had the entire apartment to myself. I grabbed my blankets from my bedroom, ginger ale from the kitchen, and settled into our big, worn, brown, fluffy living room couch, grabbed the remote, turned on the TV. Sale of the century and pressure luck and the price is right in the morning and days of our lives and MTV in the afternoon. If Swing Out Sisters' song Breakout played, which was the running soundtrack for my entire sixth grade year, I was ecstatic. I wanted to dance and tear fabric and hula hoop and run down the street and sip tea while reading a magazine on a giant swing. I really wanted to break out, lay down the law and shout out for more, break out, and shout day in and day out, break out. You've got to find a way to say what you want to say, break out. I wanted to be Corinne Drury, in and out of sleep, getting up only to use the bathroom or sneak just a few chips or one or two school fundraiser chocolate mint meltaways from the kitchen, just enough to avoid detection and recriminations later. Even when my siblings and parents came home, I had no chores. No responsibility for babysitting them. No middle school social situations to navigate. As my parents took my temperature each evening, I prayed for a 99.5 or higher so I could relive this blissful day tomorrow. Thank you, tonsils and weak immune system. Thank you for the dozen or so days off school each year. 1988. Snow Day. Permission to not have to watch my younger siblings, who could go to my grandma's house and instead spend the day at my friend's house. The 15-minute walk took at least 40, traipsing through more than a foot of snow. Her mother was home, baking. Want hot chocolate? she asked as she let me into the house. Use the mat to dry your feet. As I unwrapped my scarf and took off my coat and looked around for the best place to put it, she says, that chair there is fine. A few bacon strips left over from breakfast are on the table. Help yourself. I can make more eggs if you want them. I'm fine, I replied, already half-scarfing the bacon strip. She sets the warm mug topped with Ready Whip on the table, tells me to enjoy. My friend, watching Dirty Dancing in the living room, curled up in her Barbie sleeping bag while her younger sibling sat on the floor with the G.I. Joe and Micro Machine strewn everywhere. Her father's at the fire station. You want to go outside? My friend yells to me. Sure, just a sec. She grabs her puffy white coat and hat and pink scarf and has her boots on before I can finish the bacon. The G.I. Joes engaged in intense warfare immediately were dropped to the floor and left there as her younger siblings rushed outside for what promised to be greater fun. For the next few hours, we built the most glorious multi-room snow fort to the sounds of Debbie Gibson's triple platinum Only in My Dreams cassette on repeat, which was my most favorite on the cassette. 
The number one hit gave Gibson the record for being the youngest person to write, produce, and perform a number one single on her own. The wailing guitar and pain in her sweet voice mesmerizing me every time. Now inside the fort, my friend pulls out a deck of cards from her coat pocket, and we send each other cosmic energy to guess the right card. After we scored slightly higher than chance, she insists we're psychic best friends. And I wonder if her mom will notice if I just live in their snow fort forever. 1991. The cabin of a cruise ship. My family sleeping in cozy quarters. Me, awake on the bottom bunk, listening to the in-cabin radio on the softest setting, with the lull of the waves. Hurricane Bob was two days away, and the dark expanse of the ocean on all sides. Breathing slowly. In. Out. Expanding my lungs and attempting to stop time. The earth, the mother whose comfort I crave, the ship her womb. As we headed toward Nova Scotia, I met friends from around the East Coast. Nancy from Staten Island with her big black 1991 curls. Naeem from New Jersey with his colorful friendship bracelets, one of which he gave to me when he told me I was pretty at the teen dance on the last night, where he'd put his arms around my waist and promised me he'd keep in touch. Which, to his credit, he did twice, until we ran out of things to say. Caitlin, the tall, short-haired pre-Olympic swimmer whose confidence, poise, and kindness I admired. Aside from the dance, we ate until our hearts content. So much food. And oh, the entertainment. There was the arcade, and we had movie nights and interactive theater, where Nancy and Caitlin and I got to perform the Marvelettes' number one 1961 hit, Hey Mr. Postman, for the adults, on the talent show that last night, and I sang my heart out and did my best to keep up with the choreography, pushing away the thoughts of starting public school for the first time that fall, and clinging to every moment left of summer. 1992. Standing on the Amtrak platform, with tears in our eyes. Me and my best friend, saying goodbye. She'd moved a thousand miles away, and I was blessed to spend ten full days of spring break with her in her cottage in Maine where each day we'd plan our outfits, and I'd tell her I wished I had her gorgeous long shapely legs, and she'd tell me she wished she had my waist. And then in our sleek bodysuits and jeans and white keds and jackets, we'd head to the boardwalk by the ocean, fantasizing about the famous novelist we'd become. She, too nervous to talk to boys in any way, she saw the same ones there all the time. And me, kissing a boy I'd just met, as the wind whipped my hair into my face and the gray clouds expanded as far as the ocean. Dancing with another boy to Shanice's I Love Your Smile, the lead single to her 1991 second studio album Inner Child, which was a number two Billboard hit at the Saturday Night Roller Rink Dance. As we said goodbye and promised, with all the teenage romanticism, that we'd see each other soon, not knowing we'd only ever see each other once more years later. I boarded the train, exhausted since we'd stayed up all night on our last night together, found a window seat, and zoned out, watching the trees and landscape rush by, only breaking the blissful monotony when I headed to the dining room for the most delicious low-grade cheese pizza, or to use the restroom, or to speak with Mary, who sat next to me for a spell, regaling me with tales of her childhood and her excitement over visiting her daughter in Virginia. As night approached, I wrote an angsty poem called Dead Romance, which I later performed at a few coffee houses. I vowed I'd never travel any way but by train again. This episode was difficult to write. I struggled with what to include, which were my true moments of happiness, rather than ones of me seeking validation, wrapped up in anxiety, 
such as winning spelling bees or leading in plays and musicals with the local kids' community theater, because while I'm glad I had those experiences and I'm proud of them, I was so afraid of failing. After all, if I was good at so few things, I had to be really good at those things, or I had no identity at all. And writing this was difficult because much of my childhood is a blank slate. I struggled to bond with my parents. I struggled to bond with my peers. I've always felt locked into myself. My brain runs on repeat, telling me, so many kids have had it worse than you. And it was 30 years ago, get over it. Nobody really cares about your insignificant childhood experiences. I've struggled to accept that nobody has to connect with me. Nobody has to care about my stories. I don't need validation that my life and experiences matter. What I need is to accept them, let them live in their place, and move on. I've heard that when you suffer traumatic experiences, your emotional age can get stuck at the age you have that experience. So, that my father left when I was six years old, he returned two years later, but my six-year-old brain couldn't process or understand that at the time. I just knew he was my world and he left. And that this was also the age I could start processing how my classmates' parents treated them, and how mine treated me, and how being love-starved as a child would lead to me manifesting signs of codependence as early as the fifth grade, which made me more willing to accept abusive partners in my late teens and twenties. I didn't include the day I met the boy I felt deeply in love with at age fifteen, the day the entire world fell away, and I was enchanted by his lopsided smile and floppy blonde hair and piercing brown eyes, because I didn't recognize that my deep need for him was the start of a trauma bonding an obsession that lasted more than a decade, and to which I held onto with such a death grip, it took me the first several years of my marriage to let it go. I want to heal and move on from my past. I've tried therapy, lots of it. I've tried EMDR specifically twice, and that was so deeply triggering, I dissociated and had panic attacks and acted erratically for weeks, both times. I've tried medication, I think nothing's worked because I keep trying to heal me in the present when what I need to do is heal the child. Sarah the baby who was left to shriek in her crib for hours on end. Six-year-old Sarah whose father left who was rejected by her peers including her friend who she invited to her slumber party but who didn't invite her to hers. And why do I even remember this decades later? How even at my own parties my friends wanted to play with each other and not me. Sarah who had no idea what a panic attack was. Sarah, whose father, after returning two years later, would threaten her with being sent away to Earl at his farm when she misbehaved. Yes, it is as weird as it sounds. And Sarah, who found a book at the library titled Neurosis, Psychosis, and Schizophrenia, desperate for answers as to why her brain processed information so much differently from everyone else's. I have to be my own parent, tell that Sarah that I love her, that she did the best she could to survive, without affection, without resources and without any knowledge or understanding of what childhood trauma even was, or what neurodivergence was. I have to give that Sarah so much love, and I have to forgive her, because I don't want to write childhood nostalgia anymore. It hurts too much, and I don't want to wallow in that pain or get stuck in it like quicksand dragging me back down every time I move forward in my life. I want to look at it behind glass, preserved in a museum, contained, but powerless. I want to find my new path, with all the fear and apprehension and wonder in what lies ahead. I'd love it if you'd walk with me, even for a spell. I want to hear your stories. So send them to me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or email me 
at lifeisaplaylist at gmail.com. Until next time. What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. <laughs>